Now today we're just continuing the series we started last week called Conversations with Jesus. All of us have had some point in our life where we had a meaningful or profound conversation with someone, and those, those conversations impact us. I mean, we reflect on them, we think about them, we oftentimes draw from them for years. It might be a sentence, it might be a phrase, it might be a word. But something happens in the middle of that conversation that just sticks to our soul and we say, man, that's that's important. I need to remember that. Imagine if you were having that kind of conversation with Jesus. Now, what I don't mean is prayer. What I mean is, imagine if you were on earth at the time that Jesus walked the earth physically and you physically saw Jesus and sat down with him at a table and looked across the table at him in the eyes and was having a, a regular, you know, physical conversation, like an in-person conversation with Jesus. Imagine the impact that that would have on your life. Well, Jesus had a lot of those kind of conversations when he was on earth. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at those conversations and talking about what, what those mean to us. And there's so many of them, we can't even fit them in the series. So we're going to actually be offering, our pastors are going to be offering on our Facebook community, uh, in our Facebook community group each week, we're going to be sharing a few thoughts about some of the other conversations that won't, won't even fit in the series. So I hope you'll check that out. Last week, we talked about Jesus' conversation with John the Baptist. Now check this out. This week is going to be the most bizarre, uh, the most strange, the most unique of all the conversations in the whole series, Jesus had a conversation with the devil. Just let that sink in. Jesus had an actual, in-person conversation with the devil. Now, before you get some kind of contemporary idea of what that means, it's like a lot more than the devil went down to Georgia, okay? It's not... Because everybody knows if he was going to have a competition like that, he'd come to Alabama. We already know that. It wouldn't be Georgia anyway, right? Maybe? Okay. So what we want to do is look at this conversation, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just put the brakes on for a minute. We could, do, we could talk all morning about that verse. Because that verse is so profound and says so many unusual things. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Great! Was he led led to build a multi-million dollar company? Was he led to own a yacht? Was he led to be the most famous person that ever lived? Was Was he led to stardom? Was he led... Where was Jesus led? Look, he was led to the wilderness. Everywhere the Holy Spirit leads you is not going to be good. That just messes up a lot of stuff already, doesn't it? And then then it says, into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. Everything the Holy Spirit leads you to do is not going to feel good. But wait, there's more. He led them, he led him to the devil. Not to the ruler of Rome, not to the pastor of a megachurch. He led him to the devil. 
everyone the Spirit leads you to is not going to be good. Now that's a lot of theology to get through. But that can either be for you good news or it can be very disturbing news. Let me tell you why I think it can be good news. Because I think one of the things that happened through COVID is I think that the world's been shaken up and I think that a lot of things have been exposed and in some ways I think the American church has kind of been exposed. And so I think in this season what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to stop offering one-dimensional faith in a multi-dimensional world. Because the world's more complicated. We can't resolve everything with a tweet. We can't resolve everything with a good Facebook post. We can't resolve everything with one sentence. There isn't an easy answer to every question. And so we have to stop acting like there are. So what we're going to actually have to do is we're going to have to get deeper. (laughs) But here's what you'll find out when you do go deeper. That this journey of faith is more rich than you can possibly fathom when you start it. But that... That's the faith that we have to lean into. So one of these dimensions of faith is temptation. Some translations say testing. And do you know why testing and temptation is important? Because it reveals our ways. When you're under pressure, what you really believe comes out. When you're, everybody can look good on Sunday. Everybody can shower and clean up and brush their teeth and put on their best outfit and do whatever, go to the mall. Everybody can look good when they need to look good. Everybody can look the part when they need to look the part. Everybody can do right when everything's going well. But when the force of life presses on your throat, who you are comes out, what you believe comes out, what you think comes out, and more importantly, how you try to resolve those tensions comes out. So it's actually the how I want to talk about this morning. It's not just what you do. More importantly, it's how you do it. We've been taught that the ends justify the means. We've been taught if you're going the right direction, it doesn't really matter how you get there. But that's not true. And that's one of the major foundational truths that we see in this conversation Jesus has with the devil. This is such a profound conversation, and it's hard to get our mind around because the the deceptivity and the nuance that the devil use, uses when he confronts Jesus head on is unusual. And it's strange sounding to us. But there's so much we can learn from it. The ends don't justify the means. The how's important. We talk all the time about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but ask yourself this question. If you could pick two of those three, which two of those three have you heard the most about? The way, the truth, and the life. We've heard about the life and the truth. We hadn't heard much about the way. But Jesus is not only the way to heaven, he's the way to live. He's the way. And so this is where Satan really gets up underneath the situation and tries to drive a a wedge. The devil is subtle. And it's interesting, he never tempts Jesus to renounce his calling, to give up on his destiny. He never tries to get Jesus to um, have an identity crisis and not know who he is. Basically, Satan's approach to him and to us a lot of times is, hey, you're going to heaven, that's great, you should go to heaven. You're God's child. Great, you should be God's child. This is God's will for your life. Good, you should do it. God is real. You should believe in Him. But how the devil tempts us most often is on how we get there. 
So let me say it to you this way to just kind of help frame it. God's work done the devil's way is the devil's work. God's work done the devil's way is the devil's work. Now that's important. Now notice as we read these temptations that the devil tempts Jesus about doing the right things in the wrong way. He never says, don't do it. He says, just do it like this. It's the how. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So what are we seeing here? After 40 days, Jesus is hungry. He's suffering. The devil says, if you're you're really God's son, watch, meet your own needs. Well, that sounds innocent enough. Would God rather that I just starve? I mean, is there anything wrong with Jesus who has the power to look at a rock and turn it into bread? Is there anything wrong with him turning it into bread to feed himself? To meet? Jesus was going to spend the rest of his life healing the sick, caring for the wounded, loving the unlovable, reaching out to the rejected. He was going to spend his whole life meeting other people's needs. What would be wrong with him in this moment using the power of God in order to meet his own need? Sounds completely innocent, doesn't it? Here's the first temptation. Use God to meet your needs. Use God. So the devil wants you to see God not as a loving father, but as a cosmic resource with a lever that you can pull when you have a need. Not relationship, Resource. That's how he wants you and I to see God. He wants us to view him that way. The temptation is to become a consumer. So what we're focused on are our plans and our dreams and our desires. And oh, by the way, in Jesus' name. God, I've worked so long. I've worked all my life. I've worked all these decades. I've constructed and built and finagled and connived. And I've got to this point. And oh, God, won't you come and bless it? That's what he's saying. Let God just be the cherry on top of our kingdom and our plan. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't painful and legitimate needs in the world. The problem is the devil wants to reduce every one of us down to just needs. That's all we are. In, a, in, in 1993, I was walking with a youth group in Dallas, Texas. And I was the leader of the group. And we were on our way to an appointment we had to get to. And as we're walking through the city, this homeless guy comes up to us and says, Hey, um, I'm hungry. Can you give me some money? And I'm like, you know, tw- 21 years old. And I'm the leader. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. We, we've got to go. I gotta, I'm responsible to get this group over here for this thing. And what can I do? And so I thought, I don't want to be uncompassionate. So I grabbed a few dollars and I gave it to him. And, and we went on. And I thought, okay, good. I helped him and there it is. On the way back from our meeting across the city, walking, 
we ran into two policemen who had the guy in handcuffs who somehow in the city of Dallas, you know, millions of people, found me. <laughs> I don't know how they found me. And they said, did you give this guy money? And I said, <clears throat> sort of. <laughs> Why? And they pulled out a bag with a bottle of alcohol in it and said, this is what he did with it. Don't do that. I said, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. And they just kind of shook me. I thought, I don't, what, you know, what I do. Now, I kid you not, in, in 2020, 27 years later, I was in Dallas, Texas with my son, and we were walking through the city on the way to a thing, and I ran into a homeless guy. I don't know what it is about Dallas. And he said, I'm hungry, can you give me some money? And I went, I feel like I've had this before. When, what, I feel like I've been here. And we were on our way, and, I, and so I gave him some money. I said, okay, here, you know, I just want to help. We went to our thing, and then on the way back, I kid you not, a policeman had the man in handcuffs and stopped me. <laughs> Found me. And said, did you give this guy money? I, I'm telling you. <laughs> Ask my witness, this is what happened. Did you give this guy money? Sort of. The only thing that would have made it better if it was the same cop, but you know, he probably retired in 27 years, and he said, don't do that. And so, and so here's what I see. I tried to meet the guy's need, but I really didn't help either guy at all. I didn't help either guy at all. The American economy is driven by meeting needs, and we're better at it than any society that's ever existed in world history. The problem is it's oftentimes turned us into self-centered consumers. And our temptation is to be a consumer Christian. What is a consumer Christian? A consumer Christian is a person that is shaped more by the shallowness of their environment than they are the depth of Jesus. That's what a consumer Christian is. And we're very, in our culture, being a consumer culture, we're very tempted by this for God just to become a faceless resource. How did Jesus answer this temptation? Verse 4, he said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, life is more than needs. All, all needs, you can have every one of your needs met and still be broken and hopeless. Life is more than needs. What Jesus is saying is, my body is hungry, but my spirit is full. I do need food, but I need more than food. I, I need something else to sustain me. The kingdom of God is not just about having your needs met or meeting other people's needs. The kingdom of God is about becoming something more. Actually being transformed from inside and becoming something more and different than you were before. It's about becoming like Jesus. That's what the kingdom of God's about. Jesus didn't turn the stones to bread because he was content. And he trusted that his father would supply his needs at the right time. And he knew that wasn't his only need. Alright, the second temptation, Matthew 4, 5, and 6. Then the devil took 
uh, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, here he goes again, throw yourself down. Watch this. Did you see how Jesus said a minute ago, it is written, this, this, this? Now Satan is saying it is written. So Satan has learned. He's picked up on Jesus' cue, and he goes, okay, if you're going to quote Scripture, I'm going to quote Scripture. We got, we got something to learn from that. You know not everyone who uses the Bible is right. Right? Just because somebody's using the Bible doesn't mean they're right. Satan used the Bible. Tried to use it on Jesus. He said, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So he's tempting Jesus. What's the temptation? Use a miracle to get people's attention. You're just a carpenter. This is boring. Do something fantastic. Do something awesome. Do something spectacular. Grab people's attention. I know, I know. We're up on this big college. Jump, Jesus. Jump. Just jump. You're, if you're God's son, God's not going to let you die. Man, just jump. It'll be awesome. People will remember it as long as they live. People will stand here for generations and say, and tell their children, I remember the day I was standing here and I looked up there and I saw Jesus jump. And I was horrified. I thought, what's going to happen to this guy? And as he was falling and nearly hit the ground, a fireball came out of the sky and came screaming toward earth like a bald eagle and swooped up and captured him just before he hit the earth and then raised him up and stood him back on the rock. And that was the moment that I knew that he was God. Yeah. Then everybody will know. Man, then you can travel and start, you know, posting on Facebook and people will follow you and... They'll see the video played over and over. Look at this. And then everybody will know your God. It'll be incredible. And here's the thing. What is the test? The second temptation. Use God to escape life's troubles. Use God to escape life's troubles. This is the kind of temptation that we feel when we flip the table around on, on God and say, you're not going to test me, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you. If you protect me, if you deliver me, if you bless me, then you're God. If you don't, then you're not God. I'll get to the bottom of this right now. We'll find out. Jesus refused to use a miracle to impress people. He refused. Jesus is not some drug that we take to escape reality. He's actually the path to a more abundant life. So the devil wants us to use Jesus as a shortcut and a trick and a trap, as a, as a scheme to get or a strategy to get around. The American entertainment industry is second to none. <laughs> We have, you know, new movies and IMAX and, you know, video on our phones and things that can be shared and become viral in seconds with millions and maybe even billions of people. And the American entertainment industry is, um, it's, a, it's a diversion. And it's oftentimes fun and it's interesting. But used in excess, it becomes, it creates a flabby spectator that just stares at the adventure of real life through a glass can never really get in, never really participate, never really be part of what's really going on. Jesus would not use a miracle to escape the life that the Father gave him. 
You can't imagine Jesus being in the carpenter shop, hammering away and saying, oh man, I've got to make eight tables before the day's over and I only got time to make five. And then he whips up a Holy Ghost potion and stuff starts flying across the room and tables come together. He goes, there. Jesus would not use miracles as a shortcut. It wasn't magic. If we're not careful, we're tempted to worship miracles instead of worshiping Jesus. And now here's why that's bad. Because the day will likely come in your life when you need a miracle, and if you don't have one, your faith will be gone. Because your faith was anchored in a miracle, it wasn't anchored in Jesus. But if you put your faith in Jesus, whatever you go through, you're going to be okay. Because it's anchored in the right place. It's anchored in the right place. Most of us are tempted at some point in our life to let a miracle be a test for God. I felt this pain in my own life when my youngest son was five years old and became type 1 diabetic and I had to, I had to inject insulin into his body so he could live. I can remember the pain and I can remember the the frustration and the anger and saying to God, God, I, I've, lived a, I've lived a healthy life. I'm fine. I remember begging God in tears, give it to me. He's five. Don't give it to him. God, give it to me. I'll take it. I'll live with it. I'll die with it. Give it to me. Don't give it to him. And today he's 20 and he still has it. If I had to put my faith in that miracle, my faith would be wrecked. I had to put my faith in something else. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the nursing home pushing my wife around in a wheelchair. And she was saying, God can't heal me. And she started to cry and said, God can't heal me. God can't heal me. And I just reached around the wheelchair and hugged her and I started to cry. And I said, God, come on. Do something. God, do something. And as I left the nursing home a couple of weeks ago, it's like this dark heaviness just sat on me. And I said, come on, God, do something. Can you feel that? You didn't think the devil was going to play fair, did you? You didn't think he was going to ask you questions there were easy answers to, did you? He's not. He's throwing the painful stuff at Jesus. He's throwing the hard stuff at him. He's hitting him head on in a confrontation to try to get him to fail. How does Jesus answer? Verse 7. It's also written. <laughs> I got another scripture for you. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. God's not to be tested. He's to be trusted. The devil was tempting Jesus with a crown without a cross. And Jesus wouldn't accept it. Jesus' miracles are no escape. What Jesus' miracles do are they show us that there's more to life than we can see. There's more to life than we can touch. There's more to life than we know. <laughs> Abundant life is deeper. What's the temptation here? You ready? The temptation is that we would become celebrity Christians. 
What do I mean by that? People who just seem to walk above everything else. The rules don't really apply to me, or I don't hurt like other people. I don't feel what other people feel. I don't, you know, I don't have Mondays. I don't have bad days. We just have this sense that we have power and we have miracles and we can overcome everything and we don't feel what everybody else feels. This idea of celebrity Christianity. And you may say, well, I don't have that, but at least the pastor I follow on Instagram does. Celebrity Christianity. But real life is raw. It's unpredictable and sometimes unexplainable. Jesus knew he was the Messiah, but he wouldn't take a shortcut to show off. He waited. He waited under the steady hand of his Father. And he endured what was before him, the Bible says, for the joy that was to come. Now the last temptation do you, want, you probably don't want another one, do you? Here's one more. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Then he said, All this will I give you if you will bow down and worship me. Okay. Now the devil tips his hand. If you resist long enough, the devil will ultimately tip his hand and show you what he really wants. And here's what he really, really, really wanted all along. He wanted control. He wanted control. So here's the temptation. Use God to control your surroundings. Use Jesus to rule the world. After all, who would be better at building an efficient government and an efficient structure and an efficient society that now it would all have to be done Satan's way. You know, don't forget that. There would be no warmth and there would be no joy and everybody would be reduced to a function and to a need and it would be mechanical and it would be cold and there'd be no relationship. But what Satan wants to do is harness the power of Jesus to rule the whole world, to to be the Lord of it all. And we can hear this sometimes in fundamentalist voices that we hear today who want to use Jesus to control their school or control their family, and they hammer everything with a moral hammer. We just keep pounding it. No love, no mercy, no forgiveness. If only we had a Christian president, you know, how how incredible things would be, some people think. Now, by the way, I'd rather have a Christian president than like a demon-possessed one, okay? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there's no good, okay? I'm just saying I'm not putting my hope in who's in office. I don't care who they are. My hope's in Jesus. Because there's no man or woman who's ever going to be the president of anything that's going to be able to fix the brokenness of the world. There's one Lord. There's one Savior. His name's Jesus. And so that's where I'm putting my trust. You, do, you know, um, do you know what church fights are about? <laughs> I've seen a few church fights. Not in a long, long time. And I'm, so, I'm not asking for one, okay? I'm not inviting. I just want to make that clear. I'm not interested. But I've seen a few and uh, they'll tell you, people will tell you what they're about. They'll say, well, it's about, you know, theology. The church doesn't believe or teach or whatever. It's about, uh, you know, um, philosophy. We, we don't need to do things that way. We need to do things this way. Or, or it's about 
preaching or it's about, you know, they, they won't let the Holy Spirit move or it's about um, stewardship. You know, we're not budgeting right or whatever. Listen, I've done it long enough, I can tell you, and when it dawned on me, it helped me in leadership tremendously. Let me tell you what church fights are about. They're always about one thing. I don't care what they tell you about. Here's what they're about. They're about control. Who has it and who wants it? By the way, you know that's true in marriage? You know what most marriage fights are about? Control. Who's got it and, and who, who wants it? You know what most fights are about between parents and kids? Control. Why won't you let me go out Friday? You know, because you're not. <laughs> That's why. You know, because you're 14. That's why. But there has to come a day that you give away control and let that child become an adult. Right? You, you know what most work fights are about? Well, if I was the boss here, you know, well, there you go. It's about control. That's what it's about. Who's going to have it? Who wants it? Who has it? Who's not using it? And what the devil's actually saying to Jesus and saying to you and me, you can have it all. That's what he's saying. You can have it all. Look, as far as your eye can see, you can have this entire kingdom. You can have it all. That's what he's saying to us. You can be a Christian, but still call all your own shots. You can go to heaven, but still build your kingdom here. You can have it all. Man, have it all. You, you, that's what the, he tempts you. You can have it all. And you know what the temptation is? Watch. It's to become a cultural Christian. A cultural Christian. Just a Christian that goes with the flow of the culture, and since our culture is a consumer culture and our culture is a celebrity culture, then we'll just try to become consumers and celebrities in Jesus' name. And so we use the ways of the world, the ways of the political world, the ways of the economy, the ways of the secular world, the ways of those around us to try to accomplish God's will. And God's work done Satan's way is Satan's work. Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus answered the devil. And here's what he said. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus would not allow Satan to control his life because he had already given away full control to his father. Because he trusted him. You can't actually have it all. That's a tough thing for an American to hear. <laughs> There's a fork in the road. There's a split. You've got to go one way or the other. You can't actually have it all. Jesus endured these temptations and gave us the best example of what a faithful life looks like. And he was under, uh, he was faithful to his father under some of the worst circumstances we can imagine. Watch, here it is, watch. Why would God the Father put Jesus, his son, through all of that? 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness, in the desert in direct confrontation with the devil. His flesh 
being pulled on as hard as it could be pulled on to do the wrong thing or at least do the right thing in the wrong way why would he allow that watch here it is it's the whole thing because of God's unbelievable and unlimited love for you that's why Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 tells us for this reason he Jesus had to be made like them like us fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people look at verse 18 because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted you don't serve a God who hasn't felt what you feel you don't follow a Jesus who doesn't know the pain of your worst moment and your darkest moment he did it so he could know what it feels like to be you because he didn't want to just spout out good sounding truths he wanted to get up underneath your skin so he could fully empathize and say I know I know I know because I felt it and I know because I've been there and I know because I walked it and that's why he did it would you stand with me this morning